I'm David Atterbury, and this is Big Truths, a weekly podcast where we grow in Christian doctrine by looking through the door of church history. This is a special episode of a Wednesday night class I'm teaching on the mission of missions. One of the ways I think that many Christians think about being involved in missions is that they expand out the definition of missions. It becomes very broad because they know they can't go overseas and most Christians can't. So it seems then that most Christians compensate by expanding the definition of missions and what it means to be a missionary. That way we can all be involved in missions. And then suddenly everything is missions. But the problem is that if everything is missions, then nothing is missions, as one author once wrote. And at the same time, it seems Christians have contracted down what the Great Commission means, which we learn about in Matthew chapter 28. It becomes now very narrow, and the Great Commission is now only what missionaries do. That is, missionaries in the very strict and narrow sense. But is this the best way to think about our involvement in missions? On the one hand, is everyone a missionary? And on the other hand, is the Great Commission only what a few special people do? We'll learn about this and more in this episode of Big Truths. This class, we have been reviewing the six-part definition from Andy Johnson in his helpful book, Missions, How the Local Church Goes Global. That definition is, the church's mission is to display the glory of God. How do we do that? We do it by declaring the gospel to all peoples, by gathering churches in every place, by filling them, the churches with disciples, who obey God and will praise him forever for his grace. And as we've been going through this definition, uh, the first class we thought about what it means to display the glory of God. Uh, God's mission is to glorify himself and he does it in salvation through judgment. And the church's mission is not God's mission, aside from glorifying him. But we don't do it by saving people. We didn't die for anyone's sins. We don't judge the world, it's God's job. Well, what's our job? It's to declare the gospel, to declare that salvation, and to warn of that judgment. That's the second class we went through. Our third class, we thought about the unique place last week of the local church in that. As we hear this gospel and believe it and receive it and submit to his word, uh, as we read that word, we gather together with other Christians, and that's part of the design of God. He, it was his idea for the institution of the church. And disciples should grow in the community of disciples. And tonight we're going to think about the unique role that we have here in the local church of growing as disciples. And what's our role in missions? Uh, I said in the first class what missions is not. Missions is not any good thing a Christian could do outside of these four walls. So quite often, as people think about missions and a missionary, they tend to think 
very, very broadly about what missions might be. I think generally Christians, as they think about the Great Commission, they think very narrowly about what the Great Commission is. They have a very broad understanding about missions and a very narrow understanding about the Great Commission. They think the Great Commission, that's what missionaries do, but missions is what every Christian does. I think we should think more narrowly about what is missions and what it means to be, more importantly, a missionary. And I think we should think more broadly about what is the Great Commission and how we are involved in that as we think about what is our role in missions. Far too many Christians think the Great Commission is what missionaries do, and they think that everything a Christian could do is missions. Disaster relief, they think that's missions. Uh, passing out food boxes, they say that's missions, it's local missions. Well, what exactly is a missionary? I like what Andy Johnson's definition is. He says, there's four parts to this definition, a missionary is someone identified and sent out by a local church. Or just by local churches. A missionary is first someone who's identified and sent out by local churches to do what? To make the gospel known. A missionary is identified and sent out by local churches to make the gospel known and to gather, serve, and strengthen local churches. And they do this across ethnic, linguistic, or geographic divides. So what does Andy Johnson say a missionary is? There's someone identified and sent out by local churches to make the gospel known. And not just to preach and make the gospel known, but unto the aim to gather, serve, and strengthen local churches. And they intentionally do this across divides. What sort of divides? Ethnic divides from one tribe to another, linguistic divides from one language to another, or even geographic divides that might make hearing the gospel very difficult naturally. So there's someone who does evangelism, evangel. Remember when we talked about that, the gospel, euangelion, good news. So evangel, evangelize, is simply the telling and the teaching of the gospel. Evangelism is teaching the gospel with an aim to persuade. 
We have in mind evangelism that is going to take the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries, and that gathers churches and teaches them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. So here are some implications I want to make clear and front load just so we're all on the same page. I don't think it's helpful in the long run to simply refer to someone who lives overseas and is a Christian as a missionary. Lots of Christians travel for their work. It doesn't make them missionaries. I don't think it's helpful in the long run to refer to Christians who live overseas and have gone overseas for Christian-motivated ministries as missionaries. So lots of Christians may be working in charitable areas like providing dental care to impoverished people. As a Christian, um, we may do wonderful works of kindness and acts of mercy, but that does not make a missionary necessarily. Nor is anyone who lives overseas and faithfully shares the gospel as a missionary, because lots of faithful Christians live overseas and across these divides, and a Christian should be sharing the gospel. I think all four components need to be present. They need to be someone who's sent out on behalf of a local church. There's someone who's making the gospel known unto the aim that they want to see churches gathered and they serve and they want to strengthen these local churches. And it's across different sort of divides like this. So David, you may be thinking, you don't believe a Christian sharing the gospel overseas as a missionary? Well, it becomes a question of what do you do once someone believes? So last week I had that really long protracted illustration about the man who lights his hair on fire, gets a one-way plane ticket, and just lives among a tribe in the jungle and shares the gospel. I said during that illustration, you can always go back and listen to the audio through Church Center, I said, you know, what do you do once a person gets saved? and several people get saved, eventually what you end up having to have, if you want to be faithful to the New Testament, you have to have a local church, and you got to gather them together and obey Jesus in that way. So not only should we be scattering the seed of the word across these divides, but when there are believers, we should want to gather them together. So it's not just the scattering of the word, but it's the gathering of believers. And granted, that may take a long time. Uh, it may take a decade. And some people may have to wisely consider what's called pre-evangelism through avenues such as providing dental care to impoverished areas so that they can get into the country and have that kind of platform so that they can build trust over the years. But it's also a question of what's your aim in doing so? What's your hope? What's the end goal of going here and doing this charitable work? Do you hope one day to see believers gathered together and be discipled in a local church? Is that your aim in wanting to go overseas across these divides? And there should be a connection to ascending church. Uh, we're not just free agents as Christians just roaming around doing whatever we want. Uh, missionaries should be vitally connected to a church and should seek to further the ministry of local churches who support them and pray for them. They should be those who are sent out. Now, hang on, hang on. You might be thinking, who are you? Who do you uh, think you are to decide who is and who is not a missionary? Well, that's, that's a really good question. Who are we to decide who is and who is not a missionary? And I think we could even go one step further back and ask, who are we to even decide to use the term missionary? Because if you look in your Bibles, you'll notice 
missionary is not there, right? Nor is the term missions. You can't find that word either. But it would be good to think about that word uh, missions, missionary. Missions, where does that word come from? Why did we choose that word? It comes from a Latin root, uh, mito. And in the present active indicative, uh, missi, you can spell it with one S or two. Does that remind you of any other English words? Missy, M-I-S-S, it's not Mississippi. <laughs> And you can't say missionary or missions, but any other English words, M-I-S-S-I, they can think of? Missing. Missing? Possibly. Possibly. Yes, what other English words do we have that also would imply send? Yeah, M-I-S-S-I. Mission? Commission, yeah, well that's being sent on a mission. What do jets have that they shoot? Missile, missile or missive. If you send a, a letter to someone, it's a missive. So the word means to send. Now, is that in the Bible? Yeah, sent or send is in the Bible. The Father sent the Son. The Son and the Father have sent the Spirit. Let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 21. John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me. I also send you. Now in Greek, those are two different words. There's a few words in Greek for send or commission. But as the Father has sent me. The Greek for that. Apostolo. Does that sound familiar? What does that sound like? Apostle. Apostle. Apostolo. The Father has sent me, so I send you. So in Mark 3.14, Jesus said, uh, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him and to send them out to preach. So he named some of them as the sent ones and sent them out. You might think that's a kind of odd name, the sent ones. Jesus has called together the sendy ones, the sent, those who are sent. But then again, I mean, missive men is kind of a weird name also. It's an odd term. So the closest biblical concept or term to one who is sent as a missionary, missio, missive, is an apostle. You might be thinking, well, hang on, should we be calling anyone missionary? If the closest biblical term to that is apostle, one who is sent, well, the office of apostle was unique. Uh, they were specifically sent by Jesus to help establish the early church. There were those who had seen the risen Lord. Jesus had promised to help them recall the things he had said to them in his high priestly prayer. 
so that they may write all the things down he taught them by the Holy Spirit, John chapter 16. But it's not without warrant uh, to call someone who is not an apostle, one who is sent. The term, as you look through the New Testament, is very generically used. Quite often in the book of Acts, uh, they were sent to prison, apostolos. Uh, Cornelius sent men, commissioned them, apostolos, to Peter so that he would hear the gospel. Turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Let's look at Acts 8.14. Acts 8.14 says this, Now when the apostles, apostolos, in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they apostolosed Peter and John. So the sent ones in Jerusalem, clearly, clearly referring to the office of apostle, uh, when they heard that those in Acts chapter 8.14, in Samaria had received the word of God, they have sent Peter and John to them. So we see even in the book of Acts, there's a distinction between the office and the act of sending. Uh, for example, turn to Romans chapter 10. Let's look at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Romans 10, 14, we know that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, there's a certain logic in that. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So you get saved by believing. You have to call on him, call on him. But to call, you have to first believe how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? So to call, you have to believe. To believe, you have to hear with your ears. And how will they hear without a preacher? So to call, you have to believe. You have to hear. Someone has to audibly, verbally say something to declare the news of the gospel. Verse 15. And how will they preach unless what? Unless they are sent. Same word, apostolos. To be commissioned. To be sent out. So we have to ask, this sending, is it only then for the ones officially commissioned and sent by Jesus, the apostles, or is it for all Christians, those of us who are sent? So maybe you've heard someone say, you know, all Christians are missionaries. Have you heard that before? Well, in one sense, I guess, yes, we're all sent by Jesus on mission. We're sent on mission, which is kind of redundant if you think about it. We're sent as those on the sending. So maybe you've heard people say that the church should perhaps live missionally. Well, does that all make us missionaries then? Is everyone a missionary? Well, if everyone's a missionary, then no one's a missionary, right? Well, certainly we should all, in Romans chapter 10 kind of way, we should all persuade those whom we know to call upon the name of the Lord, to tell them the gospel so that they would hear and they would believe and therefore call on the Lord and so be saved. So I think a better way of thinking about this is to ask, in the Bible, does it make any sort of distinction between normal believers and what we might call missionaries as we know them? And the answer I think is yes. 
Yes, I think so. So even in Romans 10, 15, there's a special kind of person that has to be sent. Because otherwise, Paul would have said, and how will they preach unless everyone in the entire church moves across town? And he says, how will they preach unless they are sent? There has to be one who is sent. So even in the, ro- the logic of Romans 10, 15, there is a special person that needs to be commissioned and appointed and sent out to those who have not heard. And they will not hear unless someone chooses to go and is sent out by other Christians. And in the logic of Romans, he says, send me. I'm going to you, Rome. Uh, So send me on to Spain. So they need to be financially supported to go. Even the very name Apostle, I think, implies that what was entrusted to them now given to us was a message that must go. It must be sent out to all nations. Those who founded the church were those who were sent out. And Jesus said in the book of Acts, didn't he, you'll be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So if they did not go, then Christianity would have stopped with the death of the apostles. It would have died out unless someone went further and further to tell the whole world. Well, where else? Where else do we see this pattern of Christians volunteering to go out to be sent on what we would call missionary purposes? Or was the Great Commission only entrusted to the apostles? Some have argued and that we as Christians have no obligation to take the gospel to the nations. Let's look at the letter of 3 John. Let's look at the letter of 3 John together. Right before the book of Revelation, there's Jude and then 3 John. So the third letter of John, starting in verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects he may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully. And whatever work you do for the brothers, and are doing this though they are strangers, and they bore witness to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles, therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So what do we hear? What do we have here in the letter of 3 John? Looking at verse 7, we see that these brothers that John is talking about, these brothers who visited Gaius and we assume visited his church as well, they were hosted by Gaius, and now they have returned to John and John's church. Who are these brothers? 
We see in verse 7 probably the most clear description of who they are. They're those who went out for the sake of the name, for the sake of the name. Now, what does that tell us about who these people are, the brothers, what they were doing? Let's hear from you. What are your thoughts? What does it mean they went out for the sake of the name? Any thoughts on what that might be? They were sent out to declare the gospel. Yeah, the gospel. So they didn't go out because of a job opportunity to make trade in another city. They went out with the express person, uh, express purpose of the name of Jesus. So they would tell who Jesus is and what he did on earth. They went out for his glory, for the sake of the name. They went out for his purposes. So in the writings of John, the name has significance in relation to salvation. For example, if you want to turn to 1 John 2.12, First John 2, 12, he writes, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. For the sake of the name, your sins are forgiven. Or for example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe, what? In his name. Or John 3, 18, Jesus says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So these are those who have gone out for the name. We also learn in verse 7, they received nothing from the Gentiles. They received nothing from the Gentiles. Now, in y'all's translation, do you have anything other than Gentiles in verse 7? I think most Bibles would translate 3 John 7 as Gentiles. Uh, the name in Greek for that is this, ethnos. Any English words ring a bell? Ethnic, ethnicity. Uh, this is the word for Gentiles in the Bible. It's also the word for nations. The eth, eth, ethnos, the nations, the tribes. Um, these are people who are different. They're ethnically and culturally different. There's something other. Uh, so these brothers have crossed a boundary. It could mean they're just generically the unsaved pagan world, or it could mean they're crossing a boundary, the nations. They have received nothing from the tribes. They have received nothing from the nations. So verse 9, so why support them? Why do we have an obligation to support them? Excuse me, verse 8, rather. Therefore, John says, we ought to support such men. We ought to support such men. Well, why? I mean, why not have an obligation equally to pay the pastor who lives down the street and goes to a different church? Didn't he also go out for the sake of the name of Jesus? He may have even moved across state lines and gone a great distance to serve the Lord. He's gone out for the sake of the name. Why do you think we don't have that same sort of obligation 
to a pastor at another church across the street to financially support him as we do these brothers, as John says, we ought to support such men. Any thoughts? I mean, presumably they have their own congregations as well. Mm -hmm. So they may not be in as much need as someone that we've sent out and taken responsibility for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, part of Christian discipleship is to uh, understand that the laborer is worthy of his wages. And uh, the Apostle Paul talks about that in the pastoral letters as well. So there's an obligation to pay these men, but not another man, a pastor at a church across the street. So although a pastor across the street may be a worker in the truth, and he may have gone out for Jesus' name, but the difference is that no one else is going to support these missionary brothers. Uh, they do not accept payment. See that in verse 7? They have received nothing from the Gentiles. It sounds like that's on purpose. It's not like an accident. They tried to make a go at it, but they've just... Uh, gosh, they're just having, they're fallen on hard times. They've tried their best to get some money from the nations, but the nations weren't willing to give them any money. It sounds like they're doing this on purpose. This is designed that they're accepting nothing from the nations. They wouldn't want to accept nothing from the tribes as well. They don't accept payment by design because I think they go out to make disciples. And you can't expect people who are not Christians yet to finance Christian ministry. So I think in 3 John, what we see here is the pattern of Paul's ministry, even, in the book of Acts. And I think we can safely assume the six components of the missionary task. We talked about this a little last week. But I think what we have here in the six components of the missionary task, I think this is a biblical model. This is a biblical pattern. So what is it that a missionary exactly does? What sets a missionary apart from any other Christian worker who might go across uh, the world to do mercy ministry? What's unique about the missionary task? Well, I would say someone who is a missionary should have in mind these six things. Hopefully next week we'll get more into that. But there should be an understanding of entry into a community. You have to know who these people are, what language they speak, um, there has to be intentional evangelism to these people that they've sought to understood, understand. And once people become saved, there's intentionally discipleship. And you don't just have random scattered disciples, you gather them together. And there's healthy church formation. And as these disciples are growing, there should be leadership development. You should seek to raise up elders among these people so that they can set forth sound doctrine to their own people and refute error so that as the missionary thinks about exiting to a partnership of backing away that these national brothers can care for themselves and have their own churches and they can begin this process again but we'll get into more of that next week exactly what does that look like the six components of the missionary task so all that to say, I think this is the biblical model that we see in the book of Acts. And according to 3 John, there were more than Paul, men who went out for the sake of the name to do the same thing. They were crossing boundaries as well, and they needed financial support. So you might be thinking at this point, okay, David, so what I hear you saying is, 
I can just go get a plane ticket and go, and if I don't have any financial support, then I should expect money from churches and have a moral obligation and guilt them into paying me, right? No. Look at these men in the letter of 3 John. They're accountable to the local church. They're going to Gaius, a man who walks in the truth, a man who has concern for missionaries. And one of the signs that he works, uh, walks in the truth is because he cares for these brothers. He's acting faithfully with them. And in verse 6, these missionary brothers went back to John and reported what they were doing to the church. So these are men who went out. If they went out, what does that imply? Where did they come from? They went out from somewhere, from the church. They went out for the sake of the name, meaning that they had some sort of home base. They were known by people. They were known by John. He could speak of their character. So verse 12, it seems like there's another man, Demetrius. He's received a good witness from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our witness. And you know that our witness is truth. So you can trust this guy, Demetrius. We vetted him. We know him. Gaius, you can support him also. So John knows these men as a local pastor. He's commending them to other churches as well. So what is a missionary? A missionary is someone who is identified, they're known, and they're sent out by local churches. To what end? They want to make the gospel known. And when people believe that gospel, what do they do? They intend to gather them together to serve these churches, to strengthen them. And they're doing so across ethnic and linguistic and possibly even geographic divides. So at the end of the class, if we have some time, we're going to return to 3 John. There's so many more wonderful lessons here about missionary involvement. But I want to think more broadly now. So we spent some time narrowing down the definition of missionary. Missions and missionaries aren't people who go out and do good things in the name of Jesus. They're specifically people who are identified and known by local churches who preach the gospel and want to form local churches. But I also want us to think more broadly about the Great Commission. So let's think about that now. How do we broaden our understanding of the Great Commission? So we think about what's our role? Because you're thinking, okay, I'm probably never going to be a missionary according to this definition. So do I have anything to do with missions then? I think we're going to be helped by thinking really broadly about the Great Commission. So a missionary does these six things. They enter a community, they evangelize, they disciple, they form a church, and they raise up leaders, and then they would exit to partnership like Paul did. The last thing he did, was we can see in Titus 1.5, he was setting up elders, overseers in every town, making sure there was leaders who could lead in these churches and equip them with sound doctrine. As we look about the task of the missionary, where do you live? Where are you on this chart? As Christians, where's those who kind of live within steps two through four, right? Were those, was it mean to have be a healthy church? At least these 12 things. We are those who are living within this area. Steps two, three, and four. So think about the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and what? Make disciples. And Jesus says there's two parts to that. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and what? Yeah, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded. So it sounds like we got one of the ordinances in there, baptism, right? So what other ordinance do we have? The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. So if baptism is that initiation into discipleship publicly, where we have our public oath of allegiance to King Jesus, then the Lord's Supper is where we renew and remember our vows to Jesus. We promise we will follow Jesus in obedience. We repent for how we have failed, and we recommit ourselves for future discipleship and obedience. So Jesus tells us to make disciples. How do we do that? We need baptism and kind of the summary of uh, uh, promising to obey all of what Jesus commanded us is the Lord's Supper. But make disciples. How does one made a disciple, well, they hear the gospel and believe, right? So what do we have to have? So we covered last week the two marks of the true church. Do I have any room here? <laughs> the two marks of the true church. We have the pure word the pure administration of the ordinances, the two marks of the true church, are the preaching of the pure word of the gospel and the right administration of the ordinances. And I want you to see the Great Commission is that. When you have the pure word, when it is preached and heard and understood and people believe it, they're going to be made disciples. And what do those disciples do? They rightly should be baptized, and they rightly follow Jesus into a lifetime of obedience, I think as best expressed and summarized in the commitment of the Lord's Supper. I repent for how I failed as a disciple. I promise and renew my vows. I will obey you, Jesus, and live according to your command. So in other words, the Great Commission, the Word and the ordinances, that's basic Christianity, right? making disciples, initiation into discipleship, and the continuation of a lifelong commitment to discipleship, the two marks of the true church. You can't take anything away from that and have this still work, sort of like the mousetrap. Take any little part out of that classic little <coughs> model of a mousetrap, it doesn't work, right? One component taken away, it doesn't work. So also the Great Commission, that's the formula the outline of basic Christianity, the word and the ordinances as gathered together as the church. This is the irreducible minimum, if you want a fancy term to it, the irreducible minimum. This is bare bones Christianity, being a disciple as converted under the word, making a commitment to that pure word, making a commitment to rightly handle the ordinances. We hear the gospel, we follow Jesus, and we submit ourselves to the ordinances that Jesus has given to the local church. So when you think about it this way, the Great Commission is not just what missionaries do, right? Going across to all nations making disciples, but we need to realize we are those nations. We have been made disciples. When you think about it that way, the Great Commission, it's really, really broad, isn't it? 
It's all-encompassing. It's not just what missionaries do. It's your life as a Christian. One pastor, I think, who has very helpfully uh, summarized these things is Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He said, you know, pastors, as I go about the Christian world, he says, I've noticed pastors, senior pastors, there's kind of five components of Christian ministry. And I've noticed some pastors are more passionate about some than others. And so there's discipling other people. There is evangelism. There is raising up leaders. There is planting churches. And there is missions. These five things, discipling, evangelism, discipling evangelism, raising up leaders, planting churches, and missions. He says most pastors are really excited about one or two of those things. A few extra charismatic, talented pastors might be interested in three or four of those things. But Mark Deffer says you need to understand the kernel at the base of all of that. It is your discipleship. Your discipleship. Discipleship is you following Jesus. Discipling is you helping someone else follow Jesus. Part of you following Jesus is to help other people follow Jesus. And so what do we do? We love Jesus. We want other people to love Jesus. And as we go about this business of committing ourselves to the Lord and to his word and helping others to understand it and commit to the Lord to pray, to meditate on scripture, Eventually, we're going to come under conviction and realize, you know, there's people out there in the community, they're not following Jesus. They're not disciples. And so our heart is burdened by the gospel that has saved us, the gospel that we celebrate together as disciples, and we want those people to be saved. And so we evangelize them. So we grow at this local church. I help others to do it. Not only should I be a disciple, I help others to be disciples. And I should even help others to help others be disciples. So not only am I growing in my understanding of the gospel, I'm helping others to grow in their understanding of the gospel. And I may even help others help others grow in their understanding of the gospel. What do we call those men who are especially faithful and fruitful in that kind of equipping work? Because not only we're thinking about discipling and evangelism, now we're thinking about raising up leaders in that work. And some we recognize as especially faithful and fruitful in that work of the gospel who are equipping those to do the work of ministry, of discipleship and evangelism. We would seek even to raise them up as leaders, to even lay on hands on them and set them apart as elders in the church. Because these are men who can teach and lead the church in discipleship in these 12 areas. Men who know the word about evangelism and discipleship, who can talk about meaningful membership and leadership and preaching and teaching and the ordinances, and worship and fellowship and prayer, accountability and discipline, what the Bible has to say about giving and mission. These men who are raised up as gifts by Jesus to equip the church to be disciples. They know their Bibles. They can refute error and lead into truth and sound doctrine. They gather with and encourage the church, as we saw last week, with Barnabas, a man full of the Holy Spirit. And what did he do? He gathered with the church 
and encouraged them. Just as we see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit was gathering the churches together and encouraging them by the word. So we have discipling, evangelism, discipleship, excuse me, discipling, evangelism, raising up leaders, planting churches. How does that fit within this rubric? Well, sometimes we're going to have so many of these men who want to preach and teach the word. We want to send them out so that they can be fruitful and faithful somewhere else so that other communities who need the gospel can get sound doctrine, can have error refuted by the leadership and the teaching of these men. And then they can have other disciples, men and women, disciple them in these communities. And eventually, if we keep doing this, if we're discipling and evangelizing and raising up leaders and planting churches, eventually we're gonna realize, you know what? We can do this somewhere else. We can do this in another language. We can do this in a different tribe. We can do this across geographic divides as well. And what do we call that? We call that missions. Friends, missions is not some mysterious and mystical thing that's just bizarre and unknowable. And only a few people can figure out what is missions or what a missionary is supposed to do. Now granted, uh, language dif differences can be really difficult. Cultural differences, that can be really difficult. Geographic differences, that can be really challenging to live in a different area of the world. And these things require a certain kind of aptitude and wisdom. But friends, if we have a biblical church, then we can replicate that in another culture. This model transcends cultures. Friends, you know more about missions than you give yourself credit for. Because as we said last week, the goal and the end of missions is the local church. And that's really, really good news. You know why? Because you're a part of a local church and we're striving to be healthy in these 12 areas. So what is your role in missions? Here's your role. Help us be faithful and fruitful in the Great Commission. Help us to be faithful and fruitful in the Great Commission. Grow in your discipleship in these 12 areas of what it means to be a healthy church. Seek to have this replicated in the lives of others as you see a fellow member of your church who's not really getting one of these things. You're a gift of Jesus in their life to help them in these ways. And when we do all of this across these sorts of divides, ethnic, linguistic, and geographic, that's what we call missions. That's the task of a missionary. So the Great Commission it's not only something that you do, it is something that is done to you and continuing to be done in you. Because there's two parts of making disciples, remember. The initiation, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the lifelong learning, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The great work of the Great Commission, which is broadly the work of all Christians, when it is done more narrowly in a targeted way for a specific people group or language or place, that's the task of a missionary. So I'll say that again. The work of the Great Commission, 
which is broadly, broadly the work of all Christians, when that work is done narrowly and targeted to a specific people group or language or place, that's the task of a missionary. But still, you might be thinking, I'm, I'm still not a missionary. So what do I do? I'm not a missionary in the narrow sense. I get I ought to broadly be about the Great Commission, but how can I help in missions? What's exactly my role? Well, the best way that you can help in the narrow and specific task of missions is to start being faithful and fruitful broadly in the great task of the Great Commission. So here's what Andy Johnson in his book said. He says, there are four things you can do here. How can you help in missions? He says this, regardless of our role in a church, the best thing that we can do is, number one, believe the gospel. We should, number two, reflect on it and measure everything in our lives in light of its truth and worth. We should reflect on it and measure everything in our lives in light of its truth and worth. And having done that, number three, we can pray. We should pray for our church leaders. And number four, gently encourage them to lead in holding up the gospel. Thank them every time they make the gospel clear in their preaching and encourage them to see a passion for global missions as a natural biblical implication of the gospel. So in our time remaining, let's turn back to 3 John. As we think about how can we help in that narrow task of missions, what is my role in missions? Let's look at 3 John again. There's five things that Andy Johnson pulls out here from 3 John as lessons for us. So five things he says that we can do to help in the task of the missionary. Number one, he says we should have a concern. We should have a concern for missions and missionaries. We should have a concern for missions and missionaries. Look at verse 3. John says, For I rejoice greatly, and brothers came and bore witness to your truth. That is how you were walking in truth. So Gaius is a man who's walking in truth. He's doing things rightly, as a Christian leader ought to. Verse 5, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you work, in whatever work you do for the brothers, and are doing so, though they are strangers. These men are not from his church, but he's faithfully doing things for them. He's showing hospitality. He's supporting them. He's working to help these brothers. In verse 8, therefore we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. So we should have a concern for missions and missionary, just like Gaius. He's doing the right thing. He's walking in truth. So the desire to spread the gospel to those who have not heard, that's normal. That should be a normal part of basic Christian faith. So number one, have a concern for missions and missionaries. Number two, what we see is cooperation. We see cooperation among local churches. See that in verse seven? For they went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from the Gentiles. Verse three, these brothers came and bore witness to your truth. 
Uh, so these are uh, men who uh, went possibly from John's church out, and on the way they met Gaius and his church, and there's a cooperation between these men. Uh, they're receiving nothing from Gentiles, but John is saying we ought to support such men. So we should understand that it's good to have cooperation between churches to support missionaries. And thirdly, the third thing you can do, you should know who you support <laughs> and who you ought to support. Know who you support. See that again, verse 6. They were sent on their way in a manner worthy of God. You will do well to send them on their way. So these are men who went to Gaius Church, who knew them. Uh, John says, you're going to do well to send them on their way, to support them. Uh, we should know who we support and why we ought to support them. So if you don't regularly make it a part of your habit to keep those monthly uh, missionary highlights, please do. Sonia works hard on them. Uh, you even cut them out, don't you? She does a lot of administrative work. Andrew does as well, getting those missionaries' highlights together. Uh, once a year, we usually have Light Magazine. Get to know who we support in their ministry. You can learn about them as well at the back of our member directory. Know who you support. And not only know who you support, you should support them, Johnson says. Number four, support should be abundant. See that in verse six. In what way? ought they to be sent out? What do you see there? A man are worthy of God. Send them on their way as if Jesus was your personal missionary whom you supported at your church. How would you send Jesus out if he were going to be a missionary? In a way honoring and worthy of God, because they've gone out for the sake of the name, deserve our support. Andy Johnson has a story in here about the missionary closet. Have you ever been at churches that had a missionary closet? Holly knows what I'm talking about. The kind of things that get sent to missionaries, things that you would find at Goodwill. Oh, I was going to throw this in the trash, but if a missionary wants it, that's okay as well. Used tea bags. Holly has lots of horror stories about missionaries she's known and the kind of support or lack of support they've gotten. But we should support them in a manner worthy of God. Number five, finally, the motivation is love for the glory of Christ. I think that's another way that we can take that. For the sake of the name. They went out for the sake of the name, receiving nothing from Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men. The motivation to support these men is not necessarily in themselves, who they are. They're really, really talented. You should support these men. They got lots of degrees. They're really, really smart. No, John says, because of their sacrifice, they went out for the glory of the Lord. Therefore, support them. Angie Johnson once said, the glory of the gospel, not the neediness of mankind, is the fuel for global missions. The glory of the gospel, not the neediness of mankind, is the fuel for global missions. So you may not be a missionary in the narrow sense, but you're in the middle living inside the Great Commission in the most beautiful and broad sense. So what is 
my role in missions. Your role in missions is to be especially fruitful and faithful in this work of the Great Commission, to be a disciple yourself, to make disciples, to help them deepen into their discipleship. And you need to know the gospel to do that. So I would encourage you after this class is over, after spring break, we're going to return again. And we're going to have a class taught by Scott Ellis and Lucas Aubrey on two ways to live. If you've never been through that uh, curriculum, which helps equip you with confidence to explain and teach the facts of the gospel with an aim to persuade, I encourage you to do that. Even go back, if it's been a couple of years, for a refresher course so that you can be a part of this work of speaking the gospel clearly and teaching it to others. And by the way, we'll cover this more next week, the best way to become a missionary is to be especially faithful and fruitful in the Great Commission. Those are the people we want to send out. Any closing thoughts before we close in prayer? Yeah. He says, the glory of the gospel, not the neediness of mankind, is the self-sustaining fuel for global missions. Thank you. Um, all right. well, let's close in prayer, and I'll see you all next week. Holy Father, we thank you for how you have sent your Son. And you, Father, and the Son have sent the Spirit so that we could be equipped that we could have this great work of the gospel that Jesus accomplished, redemption accomplished on the cross, could be applied to our lives. We pray, Lord, that we could take this message to speak of the glory of the salvation, to warn of the judgment to come, that we could with love tell the gospel to our neighbors. You'd help us to overcome small barriers. We may not have to cross oceans, Lord, but help us to cross the street. Help us to overcome the barriers of fear of man, fear of rejection, and help us to tell the good news of the gospel to someone who hears. We pray that our church would be built up, rooted, grounded, and established in the gospel, as Paul says in Romans 16. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, see you all next week.